Keep praying that spring will come. I think it's going to come this week. Keep praying. It'll be here. Um, you know, we want to welcome uh, Pastor Randy's mom and dad here today. They're here for the first time. Uh, would you guys stand? I don't want to embarrass you, but... <laughs> uh, this is also Pastor Randy Sr. and Sharon, and uh, he pastors down in Kokomo, Indiana. And uh, we're, we're grateful that you've allowed Randy Jr. to come and be a part of us. Grateful, great to have Randy here. Uh, well, we're going to continue our series this morning. Our series throughout 2015 is called Conversation. And we are, throughout this year, looking at the four basic conversations we have in life. A conversation with God, a conversation that we have with ourself, the conversation that we have with each other, our family, our friends, church family, and then that fourth conversation, which is the one we're really focusing on now as we lead up to Easter, is that conversation that we're called to have as Christians with the world about Jesus Christ. And over these last several Sundays, each Sunday, just as we begin this, the sermon, we've been hearing a little bit of the story of several different people from our church family and how they found faith in Jesus Christ to change their lives profoundly. And so this morning, I've asked another couple to come. I'm going to ask uh, Josh and Shannon Rogers if they will come to the platform right now. Now, could you welcome them as they come? And step into the center and the light. <laughs> okay. All right. There we go. Um, now, uh, just a couple questions for Josh and Shannon to share. Uh, first of all, each of you at some point in your lives made that decision to receive Jesus Christ, to ask him to come into your lives. And so, Shannon, uh, we'll start with you. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? When, when did you come to Christ, and who was influential? Just tell us a little bit about that story. I don't like this, so... <laughs> it takes a lot of courage to come up here, let me tell you. Yeah, it does. So, um, I was very little, probably around five or six, when I accepted Jesus um, while praying with my parents. And, um, but then when I was 18, and I obviously knew everything, um, <laughs> I decided to, that I wanted to live my life my own way, make my own rules, you know, my own decisions, um... So I had grown up in a God-fearing Christian household. I knew what was right, but I chose to do what was wrong and live by, you know, the world standards. Um, so I just put God on the back burner, and although he never let go of me, I continuously tried to, you know, let go of him. Um, but he just kept pulling on my heart, speaking truth to me, and drawing me closer. And then when Josh and I were dating, um, I realized how important it was to have God in our lives. I was not a very nice person to my future spouse without God. Um, I wanted a relationship that was rooted in Christ. We had um, several friends and people that we knew that had were in just volatile relationships or had gotten married and divorced within their first year, and I didn't want that. I didn't want to be a statistic. Um, so I know that I was being prayed for constantly by my family members and friends 
And I believe that that played a huge part in me recommitting my life to Jesus. Um, so I kind of started back off as a baby Christian, is what I call it. I knew all those stories, all the lessons, but now I needed to um, believe in them for myself and apply them to my own life. So I am now a firm believer, not only in all scriptures, but in particular to a verse that my dad quoted over and over again. I used to roll my eyes at him all the time, but <laughs> as we were growing up, is uh, Proverbs 22.6, train a child up in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. So continue to pray. If you have someone in your life that has walked away from God or drifted away or whatever, do not stop praying because that prayer is so powerful. Um, and that verse has had a huge impact on the way that Josh and I have decided to intentionally raise our children. Amen. Great, great. Josh, how did, how did all that happen for you? How did you come to Christ? And well, a little bit did, of that she story. Just said it all, so. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> no. uh, well, for me, I guess. Uh, when I was growing up, my parents did a, uh, a good job of raising, I think, myself and my brother. And we did a, we did a good job with you know, knowing what was right and what was wrong. Uh, but one thing growing up in our household was that, for me, it was my mom that was always taking myself and my brother to the church. And as my brother got to an older age, he decided not to go because my mom was giving him the choice and where I kept going. But then once I got into that choice option or into that option where I had a choice, I stopped going to church as well, and I sort of strayed away. However, during that time and during growing up, I always knew that there was something that was there. I knew that there was a connection that was that felt void, and um, it wasn't really until I connected with Shannon that um, you know making that next choice towards marriage was going to be something that was very important. And for me, you know, marriage is something that's very holy, and if I was going to be come married to somebody, I wanted to make sure that that I was making that vow to not only her, but also to God, and that ultimately was one of the main things to me. Now, what I'm saying right now is absolutely nothing of what I wrote down on my sheet, so <laughs> I'll just going off whatever it is. All right. Hey, the Lord's extemporaneous. That's good. That's good. Uh, well, Okay, now Josh, I know that uh, just a few months ago, or was it last Easter? I can't remember. One of our recent baptism services, yeah. uh, there's a little water baptism story here too that Josh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, um, so when, I found, well, when I first found Jesus about nine, ten years ago, <clears throat> I never really made it, uh, the commitment to become water baptized because I was never water baptized. And I know from being here for so long that seeing the water baptized, I was like, I'm eventually going to do that. And then I saw it again. I was like, I'm going to eventually do that. And then finally, <laughs> uh, Pastor Jim was talking about water baptism, baptism was going to come up. And uh, I knew I was going to do it. And I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell anybody that I was going to do it. Uh, before, we got to, you know, before we got all the kids in the car, I grabbed a pair of swim trunks, grabbed an extra <laughs> pair of clothes, uh, and a towel, and uh, I, I brought it all in. And then when Pastor Jim started going through the process of the water baptism, I, I scooted myself out, got changed, came back, and I was doing it for myself, but for me to take that commitment, I, as soon as I sat down in the chair, I looked at Shannon, and she was just overjoyed, the look on her face, because she knew that, um, you know, I never did it, and to make that commitment and to do it publicly was something that was truly special, and it was just a yeah, special That's moment, great. So. There's something about water baptism that settles the commitment because it's 
you know, you're publicly testifying that, hey, I, I'm following Jesus and that's it. He's my future. I'm with him. So if you're thinking about being water baptized next Sunday, I want to encourage you, if you never have, take the step. Uh, Jesus didn't make it an option. He said, do it. Do it if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So I have one more question, and that's simply this. Um, what change would you say Jesus, what does one change Jesus Christ has made in your lives? Shannon? Well, mine's not just one. <laughs> well, two's okay. <laughs> Um, really, it has affected me in all aspects of my life, from the way that I treat my husband uh, to the way I treat my kids, my siblings, my parents, um, people I work with. Um, after our first baby was born, I realized just how much I needed Jesus. I can remember sitting in the hospital and holding her in my arms and just starting to grasp what was given up when Jesus died on the cross for us. Um, I had all these emotions and fears and things that I couldn't control, which for someone with my personality is kind of hard to accept. Um, so I threw myself in my Bible, and I was searching for reassurances um, from his word. And the more I did, the more I just desired to be with God. Um, I now find myself relying on a daily basis or sometimes even an hourly basis due to our four perfect little energetic blessings that we have running around. Um, <laughs> But I previously lived in my own bubble, and I was fine with that, and I didn't desire anything else. And God expanded or broke my bubble, if you will, and it gave me this desire for godly friendships. And he has put us in a small group that was some of the most amazing women that I am so proud to call my friends. And um, he took that desire and then increased it to um, women and their kids. And so now we're on our third Bible study that I've hosted and lead, um, which I would never have done that before. I like my privacy, my bubble, but God had another, <laughs> another you know, call for me. So um, he, I mean, even me standing up here right now, if he would have asked me, Pastor Jim would have asked me just a couple years ago, I'd be like, I would have made up any excuse. Like, <laughs> absolutely not, not happening, you know. Um, so basically, it's been a total life Great. transformation for me. Excellent, excellent. Josh? Um, I, I think the biggest change was, uh, one of the main things was our relationship. I mean, to that, to also, uh, if you, with us not having uh, Jesus or Christ in our life and not knowing, you know, that whole, I mean, just everything about it, our relationship was missing something. And even though we did get married and we did know that Jesus was, with us, not until we were actively acting it out, or you know, reading the Bible, or uh, you know, doing Bible you know lessons with our kids, or being a part of a small group. I will say that the small group has been something that's been really good for us uh, because with the amount of time that I mean, just like all of you guys out there, I'm sure that you're always working. There's always something going on. You're just so busy. But um, the small groups are great, and we were able to connect with uh, a bunch of great people here at the church that also have kids, and um, the Bible study has allowed us to get those friendships because it's hard when you're always busy and you're just confined to your home or just doing, you know, whatever you go outside the home is just family or just doing little, you know, tasks, but being able to go and meet with other people, see what other people that are going through the exact same things that you are, and being to apply you know, the lessons from the Bible or whatever to your own lives and know that you're not alone in it is pretty, Good. pretty awesome. So. Great stuff. All right. Well,
could we thank these guys for coming up here today? Thanks a lot, you guys. God. I'll explain this in a minute. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to throw it at anyone. So. Well, the power to change our lives is, uh, that we've been hearing these last few weeks is what uh, this final week of Jesus' life was all about. And we begin to celebrate that final week today with Palm Sunday, leading up to Thursday night, uh, and then Friday night, uh, we'll come back, Good Friday, Sunday morning resurrection. But it's all because of what Jesus did and accomplished, all, all, because, all of, uh, because of what he set his mind to do for us during that, those last seven days of his life that we can hear stories of transformed lives that we've been hearing over these last few weeks. Now, we do call this Palm Sunday. We'll understand a little bit more about that as we go through the message today, why it's Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday, the whole full account, is in Luke chapter 19. You can read that later. We're not going to have time right now to read that entire account. Uh, But we're going to focus on just a couple things that happened during Jesus' uh, entrance into Jerusalem. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. So let me just give you the the, the scenery behind it, okay? Set set the setting. Uh, Jesus approached from the village of Jericho, Uh, into Jerusalem. He came from Jericho 18 miles to the east. And as he did that, there was a sizable crowd that was following him because, for one thing, he had healed blind Bartimaeus in the city of Jericho. And the crowds just swelled as he went along toward Jerusalem. Now, just when when they got outside the city of Jerusalem, they met another crowd coming from Jerusalem. And that was probably an even larger crowd. Uh, it was Passover week. During Passover week, as many as 500,000 people, Jewish people from other nations, would crowd into the city of Jerusalem. The population of the city was usually only 50,000. So, I mean, every hotel, every, that place was packed. But they were, and they were there for Passover. And Passover was the celebration of the Jewish people remembering centuries before when God had required a sacrificial lamb to be, to be taken by each family, a spotless lamb, slain, sacrificed, and then eaten by that family. And, that was, and, and God's promise was every family that did that would not be touched by death on the night they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Now, that's another entire story. Can't go in, but that's a sketch. That's a sketch of it. That's what they were there to celebrate. that God required a spotless lamb to be sacrificed. Now, that'll enter into our story a little bit later here. Now, but this large crowd that's coming out of the city that meets the crowd coming from Jericho, they were just as excited because just a few days before this, in a suburb of Jerusalem, Bethany, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So when these two crowds met, I mean, the atmosphere was electric. It, it was awesome. They, it, it, it was exciting for them. But it became even more exciting when they saw how Jesus was making his entrance into the city. 
The only time it's recorded in the Gospels where Jesus ever did anything other than walk into a village. This one time, he was riding a donkey into the village. And as soon as all these Jewish people saw that, their minds would have immediately gone back to one of the great prophecies of their, all, of their great conquering Messiah that was going to come in and come and ride into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. He was going to come into the city and uh, deliver them from Rome, bring the kingdom of God to earth. And so all the people, so excited, they went to the palm trees that were there. They started to cut the branches off. They started to wave those palm branches, and hence we have Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus entered into the city. Now, there are two things that happen as Jesus makes his final approach toward Jerusalem that I want us to focus on this morning. Just two things. First, the religious leaders were part of the crowd that day. And when they heard all the people shouting and worshiping Jesus and calling him the great Messiah, the great king, well, they had already long ago determined that Jesus was a fraud. He was, an, he was, he was uh, an, a heretic. And so they came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you've got to put a stop to this. How can you be so arrogant as to allow these people to heap this kind of praise and this kind of worship upon you? Jesus, this is heresy, blasphemy. But you know Jesus' response? Far from stopping what was going on, Jesus shocked the religious leaders again. This is what he said in verse number 40, Luke chapter 19. He said, if I... I tell you this, if these people stay quiet right now, then the rocks alongside the road right here, they're going to start screaming out praises to me. Now, what was Jesus saying? Well, he was saying to the religious leaders, in essence, he was saying this, you guys are as spiritually dead and unresponsive to God as a rock because you don't realize what is happening here this moment right under your eyes, right under your noses. So I will accept their worship. I will accept their praise because I am their Messiah. I am their Savior. I am the fulfillment of all of what the prophets in the Old Testament said. I am the coming king. Now, and so they stomped off and got more angry, and and their plot to put Jesus to death, man, it was really fired up. But here's the strange thing. You know how, uh, I don't know, has anyone in here ever been the grand marshal of a parade? (laughs) You're a celebrity. Raise your hand. This is your your moment. (laughs) Okay. I haven't. But you 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 stand at a parade, and you watch the, uh, the grand marshal of the parade. What do they always do when they're riding down in that sleek, convertible with the top down <laughs> and all the, you know, the, the, the roads lined with uh, people watching. You know, what do they do? They, there's this certain wave. Have you ever noticed that? There's a celebrity grand marshal wave. Every parade I've ever seen, it, it goes something like this. It's almost like one of those bobblehead type figures. You know, the hand goes back and forth like that. Well, uh, Jesus wasn't doing anything remotely like that. In fact, Jesus was heavy of heart. Now, isn't that strange? In the midst of this great moment and all the cheers and of the crowds, Jesus was heavy of heart. He wasn't waving. He wasn't celebrating. 
And suddenly this became very, very obvious to the crowd. Because when they came to a ridge overlooking the city of Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19 tells us that Jesus suddenly, he stopped. And he, he dismounted from the donkey for a moment. And, uh, and then the whole procession stopped. They probably bumped into each other as they stopped. And then Jesus did something that not even his disciples had ever seen him do. Not this way, anyway. It says he began to weep over the city. Now, they had seen him weep just a few days before at Lazarus' grave before he raised him from the dead. But that was, the word there is the word that refers to a private, personal kind of weeping, shedding of tears, shedding of sorrow. But the weeping Jesus was doing here, the word for that is public. He was convulsing in tears. Jesus broke down. He was, his body was shaking and trembling. He was sobbing loudly over the city of Jerusalem. He was doing the opposite of what would have been expected of the king at this moment. And so the question obviously is, uh, why? Why was he weeping at this moment? Well, verse 42 goes on to say something, to give us the reason. I'm going to break it down. But he, he was pray, basically praying, saying this in his prayer as he was weeping. Jerusalem, if only you had realized your moment. If you had only realized what's happening here today. If you really realized who I am. But it's hidden from your eyes. They couldn't see it. And so even though the crowds were cheering, they were too, he was weeping because they were too spiritually dead, too much like a rock, unresponsive to God, to really know what was happening. They thought, this is what the crowd thought, they thought that Jesus was going to lead them into battle with Rome, who were the invaders of the land, to set them free from the oppression and the slavery. They saw political freedom, but they totally missed it. And in fact, uh, if they should have had a clue from the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. When your king comes riding to you gently and humbly on a young donkey. See, in those days, whenever a king was preparing for battle, he rode into the city on a great war horse with his weapons strapped to his side and his sword. So that when they saw Jesus coming in as a king, riding on a donkey, the custom that, now kings did do that, but when kings rode a donkey into a city, they were coming not for war, they were coming to bring peace. So Jesus wasn't coming to set them free from Rome. He was coming into Jerusalem to set people free from their sins so that they could come to know the freedom and the peace that only God can bring to the human heart. He was weeping because the majority of people in that crowd simply didn't get it. Their praise was misdirected. They were trying to fit Jesus into their own religious, political, cultural, their own personal agendas. Now, I want us to take a look at four reactions that, uh, to Jesus that were set in motion in this crowd that really solidified over the next four days. By the time we get from Sunday to Thursday, there's four different crowd reactions here that have solidified 
in the hearts of the people that were there cheering him on that day. Here's the first one. There was the religious crowd. These were led, this crowd was led by the religious leaders. And they had hated Jesus from the get-go. Now, they were the most religious people in the society. But what their religion boiled down to was this. We earn God's favor. We earn God's salvation by our own good works, by being as good as we can, and by keeping all the religious rules and rituals the best we can. It was also a religion of comparison. Uh, the, The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were always comparing themselves with others. In the previous chapter, Luke 18, just a few days before this, Jesus had confronted the Pharisees. And he had, he, had, he had told them a story about two guys that went down to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee, a religious leader, and the other one was this despised, corrupt tax collector. They both go into the temple to pray. And so when, when the Pharisee prays in Jesus' story, uh, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he begins to pray something like, Oh God, I am so thankful that I'm not like this other guy over here, this ugly, corrupt tax collector. Thank you for not making me like him. Uh, Thank you, Father, that I, I don't commit adultery. I don't sin. I, don't, I fast twice a week. I give my tithes. I do all this great stuff. The Pharisee thought, by comparison to this guy, God must, certainly God's salvation rests upon me. But then he has the, has the tax collector pray. And the tax collector's prayer is completely opposite. He does, Jesus says he doesn't even turn his eyes up to heaven. He doesn't feel worthy to look up toward God. And he begins to pray something like, Oh, God, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of you. But have mercy on me. And then Jesus says, Which of the two do you think went home accepted by God that day? It was the guy that cried out for mercy, who saw his heart, who who saw his heart as it actually was and became responsive to God. You know, the, the... The problem with uh, this crowd of people, and this crowd of people is still very represented in our world today, that all I have to do to be accepted by God is to make sure I'm a a good, decent person. Uh, But there's only one person that we can properly compare ourselves to. It's not to any other human being. The only person we can really compare ourselves to is God himself. So, When you or I stand up and measure ourselves by the perfection and sinlessness of God, where does that leave all of us? It leaves all of us looking like we fall short a long way, right? And we do. Well, the whole point, the reason Jesus wept for this crowd was he was was coming into Jerusalem. He was going to the cross for this very reason to close that gap, to become... He was going going to the cross to take all of our sins. And that gap between a holy God and an unholy us. He was going there bearing and taking the blame for your sins and my sins so that they could be cleansed and wiped away. He took the blame so that we could be set free from our sins and come to know God. But they couldn't see it. Now, there was a second crowd there that day I'm going to call them the irreligious crowd. And these were the guys that were really cheering Jesus on that day. But when later in the week they saw that Jesus was not coming to set them free from Rome, 
but that he had a spiritual agenda. He was coming to set them free from sins. Well, they turned against Jesus with a violent force, and a good many of them became part of that late Thursday night crowd that were screaming out, crucify him, crucify him, put him to death. Because they weren't interested in spiritual things. They weren't interested in, they were interested in the here and the now. And you know, we live in a world today that's probably more than ever interested in the here and the now, being in touch with what's going on now, uh, living life now. I think one of the reasons that movie, and maybe many of you have seen it, the, the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. How many have seen that movie? Okay, uh, see it if you haven't. One of the reasons that movie is so popular is because we get to watch Walter. I'm going to do a movie spoiler here. But we get to watch Walter break out of his shell and get in touch with the world, get in touch with life. And this guy finally comes to life. We want to be in touch Technologically, We want to be in touch digitally. We want to be in touch in our fashion, the way we dress, the way we appear, uh, in our cars. We want, to be, we want to be in touch with what life is all about. But, you know, here's the thing. We can be very, very, very much in touch with this world and the here and now. But we can be as out of touch with spiritual things, with God, as this rock is. We can be a spiritual Walter Mitty, uh, out of touch with spiritual things. And there are a lot of spiritual Walter Mitties living on this planet right now. There were people in that crowd that day. They just didn't, they weren't interested in spiritual things. And the other thing about it is they didn't like to be called sinners. Uh, it was sort of downright insulting and demeaning to be called a sinner. But the reality is, well, you know, be called a sinner. I mean, why, why does that, why, why do we react against that? Well, because we feel like it damages our self-image. It damages our self-esteem, our self-worth to be called a sinner. But, you know, here's the reality. Uh, the only way our self-image our view of ourself will ever be healed and ever become what God intended it to be. We have to first face the fact that we are sinners. That's the healing step. To, until, when sin is put out of the way, that's when we, for the first time, get in touch with God. And who better to put you in touch with who you really are, your self-image, and to make you into the person you were created to be? Who is better capable of doing that than God. But sin stands in the way. Jesus came to remove that barrier so that every human being could come directly to God and know him and God could unfold in their life what he created them to be, make them the person he called them to be. So they didn't see that repentance of sins is the doorway into reality. They didn't see it because their hearts even though they had cheered Jesus that day, they didn't understand. They didn't understand the real purpose. There's a third crowd there. Uh, and these were, this is a totally different kind of group. They were also cheering that day. Probably cheering louder than anybody else. 
and those, that was Jesus' own disciple circle. Uh, these 12 uh, men who had been with him for three years, close up to him for three years, but who by Thursday evening, late Thursday evening, when they saw that Jesus was going to allow himself to get arrested and that he really was going to go to a cross, well, these guys that had been so close to him over those years, they deserted him. They, they ran and hid. They ran and hid because they thought, you know what? If they're going to put him on a cross, they might put us on a cross too. And so when it had been easier to follow Jesus, when the crowds were really astounded and amazed by Jesus and, and giving him all kinds of adulation, they were close to Jesus. They stayed with him. But when it came down to loving Jesus strong enough to die for him, well, their commitment just didn't go that deep. It didn't go that deep. That was a third crowd that was there. And then there's a fourth crowd. And this is a much smaller group. This is a crowd that stayed very, very close to Jesus all the way through this. They followed him right up to the foot of the cross. And it was that circle of women led by Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, and a handful of other ladies that were deeply committed to Jesus Christ. They're the ones who stayed with Jesus all through this, and they stood with him right at the foot of the cross. Uh, now, one of the apostles, the apostle John, later, he got up, he got up enough courage to come over and stand at the foot of the cross as well. But the rest of, the, the rest of the, his close, close, intimate followers, they stayed distanced from Jesus until Sunday afternoon after the resurrection when Jesus came and finally appeared to them and, and restored, they were restored in their faith in him. Now, uh, he just hadn't... He, uh, he hadn't been first in their hearts, but he was first in the hearts of these ladies who stayed faithful to Christ. Now, I want, to keep, I want you to keep these four reactions in mind uh, because in a moment, uh, I am going to ask you, uh, which crowd do you stand with? Which one of those four crowds do you stand with today? So you can think about that for a second. But before we look at that, uh, we've, we've seen the crowd's reactions. But what was Jesus' reaction in the middle of all this? You know, from a human perspective, the best thing for Jesus to have done on that Sunday was to turn that donkey around as quick as he could and gallop as fast as a donkey can gallop. And I don't even know if a donkey can gallop. But anyway, to get that donkey moving as fast as he could in the opposite direction and get as far away from Jerusalem as he possibly could. From a human perspective, that would have been the best thing for Jesus to do because, and Jesus knew this, he was heading straight into a horrible eruption of injustice and extreme violence that was going to be unleashed against him from this very same crowd of people. He could see their hearts. He knew where they were going to end up by Thursday evening, the space of just four days. Now, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday came and passed. 
And then the Passover meal at sundown on Thursday evening. All the Jewish families began to gather for that. But Jesus had not mustered the great army. He had not supplied the people with weapons. There were no war rallies. And so, as we've said, the majority of that crowd, they turned against him with irrational mob violence. Jesus knowingly made himself the lightning rod in the center of Jerusalem. Everyone's anger, everyone's rage, everyone's hatred, everyone's disillusionment, disappointment, all of that was striking Jesus like lightning. But you know what? It was worse than that. Because later on, after Peter, looking back, writing one of his letters, many years later, understood what all this was about, after Peter had been restored, this is what he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. This is, what Jesus, this is what Jesus was doing. It says this, Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. You see, all of our sins... Every sin you've ever committed, big or small, secret or public, any sin I've ever committed, and this is true of all humanity and of all history, it all struck like the worst lightning storm we could ever imagine. All that, all, every sin was like a lightning bolt that struck Jesus during that week, and especially when he was hanging on that cross. Jesus hung on that cross for you and for me to cleanse us from our sins so that we can have a brand new life. If we will just become responsive, if we will just come to him in faith and say, Lord, thank you for dying on that cross for me. Thank you for taking the blame for my sins. I invite you into my life. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. When you pray that prayer, then the same then you're going to have a story change in your life because you've just put the pen in God's hand. You're not writing your own story anymore. God's going to start to write your story. And God's going to begin to become a reality, not some distant, remote philosophy. He's going to become a reality in the depths of your heart, the depths of your life. But it begins with repentance, thanking him for what he did in that cross and coming to him. And so... So Jesus came to Thursday night to the Passover meal, which then became the very first communion service that was ever held. And Jesus that night, as you know, he took some of the bread, he held it up in front of the disciples, and he said, this bread represents my body that is going to be given to death for you. And then he, after he, and then he gave it to them to eat. And then he took the cup, and he held it up, and he said, this blood is the new covenant, uh, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the blood that I'm going to pour out for the forgiveness of your sins when I go to that cross so that all the barriers can be re removed in your life. You can be restored to God. And so, so this is why Jesus wept for the city and why he weeps for all the people of the world of all history 
And this is why Jesus Christ is weeping for an awful lot of people today. He's rejoicing over those who have, whose eyes have been opened and who have come to him. In fact, heaven says every time a sinner, any, any one of us, comes to repentance, heaven turns into a party. But, he's, but I'll tell you what, for every person that has not repented, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe, believe, believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But if a person has not believed in him, has not repented of their sin, that person, Jesus says, is perishing in their sins. They're headed into an eternity that separates them from God and life and goodness for all of eternity. It's a serious deal. I mean, Jesus wouldn't have come all the way from heaven and went and died such a death on the cross as he did if this wasn't a real serious deal. And if you and I could get to heaven on our own by being part of that crowd that says, well, I'll just compare myself to others and make sure I have a a longer list of good stuff I've done in my life than bad things, then God will let me into heaven. No, no, that is not the way to heaven. If it was, then we don't need Jesus to die on the cross. Easter, we don't even need Easter. We don't need Good Friday. We We need none of what I'm talking about today. But Jesus loves us, and he came into this world. You know what it... Uh, well, I'll get to that. Here's what Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says. It says this. God showed his love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I'm going to ask uh, the worship team to sort of quietly come and take their positions right now. And in just a moment, uh, we're going to come to communion too. Uh, One of the things that Jesus told his followers was, down through the centuries, when you come together, I want you to celebrate the same meal because I want you to never, ever, ever forget what this final week of my life was all about. I never want you to forget what the cross is all about. And so we're going to share in communion together this morning as a a church family. And I want to come back to that question that I asked just a, a moment or two ago then. And this is a really serious question, really, because there's only four crowds of people on this planet today, the same four, the same four uh, reactions in that crowd, same reactions to Jesus today. And everyone in this room, we are standing with one of those four crowds, every one of us. Are you standing with the religious crowd who felt that by being good enough, they could earn their salvation. Is that where you're standing? Are you standing with that irreligious crowd who, they just weren't interested in spiritual things? That's for religious people. I don't need that spiritual stuff. I just want to live in the here and now. If we only want to live in the here and the now, we're never going to be able to live with God in the hereafter. But he wants to live with us in both places, the here and now and the hereafter. And he wants to change our lives. Let us be the people he created us to be. Now, here's a a unique group. Or are you a Christian who received Jesus at some point in the past? And like the disciples, you were just once really on fire for him. You were really close to him. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, man, you were right there. You were right there with him at his side. 
But then something happened. Started to drift, started to get distracted. Maybe uh, you got mad at God because of a problem in your life or whatever. You got angry at God. And today, you're no longer at Jesus' elbow. You, you, know, you are distant from him. You, you've taken yourself off on another path. You've walked away from Jesus. Jesus may still be in your heart, but you're not walking with him today. You're out there hiding. Could that be you? Or are you one who is or will become one of those to follow Jesus right straight to the cross, repenting of your sins, receiving him, opening your heart to him, letting him set you free from the power of sin. If you have backslid away from Jesus, this is his call to you is turn around, do a U-turn, and get back here at my elbow. Come, open your life to me, embrace me, become, be willing to die for me, live, to, live with that passion for me. Be a true disciple. If you have never come to Christ, if you have never really prayed a serious prayer saying to Jesus, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I don't measure up to your, your righteousness. I know I'm lost without you. So Jesus, I come to you right now. I, I ask you from the depths of my heart to forgive me of all my sins. Come into my life and make me that new person you promise you will make me to be. If that's you today, then you can become part of this crowd, of, this crowd that went to the cross and their lives were never the same as a result. And that's my prayer. And if you've been wandering from Christ, I can't think of a better time when we come into communion to rededicate your life to Christ. If you've never received him, I can't think of a better moment than when we're getting ready to have communion, just to say, Lord, come into my life. I give my life to you. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now. And we're going to come for communion. We have four stations. 